Well, good morning, and uh, I'd like to add my welcome to you all this Sunday morning. Um, it's quite a warm one already, but uh, I hope we'll make it through without fainting. Um, so you'll see from the bulletin what my name is, Trevor Marshall. Uh, if you know me, you'll know that I'm an English teacher here in Prague. And uh, one of the things I often say to my students um, in lessons is uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, and we're going to look today at um, some of the stupid questions that Jesus asked, which may be a little bit shocking for you to think about. But when I talk to them about stupid questions, I uh, often say, well, actually, that's not quite true. I mean, some students come quite close, and if you're a teacher... You'll know what I mean. But um, I give them an example sometimes of a, a student I taught back in the UK and it worked in a residential school. And uh, on a Saturday morning, we often took the, the boys to uh, a pound shop. Now, that's obviously a very English thing because we have pounds, but it's, I think there are probably similar things in the States. I don't think a crown shop would be all that entertaining. Um, <laughs> be quite limited in what you could buy, but basically everything in a pound shop costs a pound, and so they don't have prices on because it says this costs a pound, and everywhere you look there are signs saying everything costs a pound. Um, there's one called Mr. Pound that we walked past once where they had a loop playing, have a look around, it's Mr. Pound, Mr. Pound has come to town. Now, how the shop assistants didn't die of some mental aberration by the end of the day, I don't know. Anyway, so I took these boys, when the shop was fairly new in Stroud in Gloucestershire, we took the, the students to pound, the pound shop, and uh, I was just looking around, seeing what was there, and one of my boys, who was actually reasonably intelligent, but he picked something up, I don't know what it was, and he, he went over to the shop assistant and said, excuse me, can you tell me how much this is? I looked at him, she said, oh, it's a pound. Well, oh, okay, um, and he went and put it back. A few minutes later, he picked something else up and he took it up to her and he said, um, can you tell me how much this is? And I was thinking, Martin. And she looked, she said, it's a pound. Oh, thank you. A few minutes later, same thing again. Picked up something different, took it up to her and said, can you tell me how much this is? It's a pound. And eventually I had to intervene and say, Martin, everything is a pound. That's why it's called the pound shop. Um, so he had actually found the stupid question to ask. Um, but I want to look today at some stupid questions, uh, or at least superficially stupid questions, that Jesus asked. And here's the first one. And I think this uh, fear came up in quite a few of the songs we sang today. So this is a relevant question, not just to the specifics of the story that we'll see uh, in Matthew in a few minutes, but also to our, our lives today. Why are you so afraid? Well, fear is a natural emotion, isn't it? We all feel fear at different times. We feel it um, when we sense danger. Countless times it saves us from making uh, foolish or reckless or dangerous decisions. Um, and it's something which operates not at a conscious level. I'm not a psychologist, so you may want to tear me to shreds later, but we don't really think about our fear. We don't consciously decide to be afraid or to be fearful. Um, 
after this service, you can go home and you can, please, those of you with smartphones, after this service, not now, you can happily spend minutes or hours browsing phobialist.com, uh, which apparently has been on the internet since 1995 and grows on a regular basis. And there you can find lots and lots of phobias and their uh, technical-sounding names. You might, at the moment, be experiencing homilophobia. The Sunday school children who were so pleased to hear that there was Sunday school today clearly would have been suffering from homilophobia, which is the fear of sermons. My personal favourite is, I can't even pronounce it, arachibutyrophobia. Anybody know what that is? Because I knew about this before I looked at phobialist.com. This is a great fear. This is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> now, personally, I think your proper fear should be of peanut butter ever entering your mouth, but that's just a, a personal preference. Um, When Harriet saw this on the screen at home, my daughter, she said, oh, yeah, it is, though, isn't it? It's, that's horrible. So clearly it's a, <laughs> it really is a thing. Um, but Jesus wasn't talking about those things, and he said, why are you so afraid? Uh, it'll be on the screen. If you want to follow it in Matthew 8, you can. But we're just going to read the rest of that account. Then he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, <clears throat> Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You know, if only the disciples had known when he said, why are you so afraid? They could have said, well, Lord, because we're suffering from thalassophobia and thanatophobia. Fear of the sea and fear of death or dying. Rather nicely, they did appear one on top of the other in phobialist.com. But they didn't have the benefit of phobialist. I think 4G coverage was patchy out on the Sea of Galilee at the time. And so they were faced with this question from Jesus, which must have really seemed quite stupid. Why are you so afraid? And the, the, the bareness of the New Testament account doesn't, bring to mind very easily the drama. This is a sea and a wind and a storm which is terrifying seasoned sailors. They don't wander up to Jesus and tap him on the shoulder. They're holding on to ropes or to masts or anything they can find so they don't get thrown into the water. They're shouting to be heard above the noise of the rain and the wind and the flapping sails and the crashing of the sea. And Jesus just says... Why are you so afraid? 
And I think what we learn from this, what we're going to try to do as we go through these questions is, what, what can we learn from this? And I think we learn from this that all fear is pointless if we are in the presence of Jesus. All fear. This wasn't an irrational fear on the part of the disciples. They were being completely sensible. Their lives were in peril, and yet they'd forgotten that central thing, that Jesus was in the boat with them. They were in the presence of Jesus. So on to question number two. Sorry, I missed this bit. Jesus provides the answer, doesn't he? Before he asks the question. He identifies that at that point their faith was lacking. They didn't see that Jesus was the answer to their fears at that point. Now we get to question number two. What do you want me to do for you? Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, I think it's hard not to like Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar, but he clearly knew what was going on around him because when he was sitting by the side of the road begging and he heard a great commotion, he said, hey, what's going on? They said, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he knew who Jesus was. He'd obviously heard, he'd listened, and he knew that this was maybe the opportunity for a life-changing encounter for him. And he wasn't going to be sidelined by this. Then they came to Jericho, we read in the book of Mark. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. You might want to turn this down just for a second, Alex. Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me! Because there was a crowd. Again, it's not, kind of, uh, excuse me, Jesus. He began to shout. He was desperate. He wanted Jesus to hear him. Many rebuked him, told him off, and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. It's all right, I'm not going to do it again. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Again, on the surface, Jesus' question is quite hard to fathom. What do you want me to do for you? It, it seems, if you'll excuse the pun, blindingly obvious what Bartimaeus would want. But you know, Bartimaeus was a beggar. He had maybe two main problems. He had no way of making money, of getting food for himself, maybe providing a home, and he was blind. At that point, he might have been extremely hungry. At that point, he might have been cold. He might have been aching from spending a night on the street. His immediate need might have been for all of those things. But he knew that what caused all of those things was his blindness. But Jesus asks 
What do you want me to do for you? And it's important when we hear that question that we know what the right answer is. Because so often I come up with the wrong answer. I come up with more time, more money, more friends, or friends a better job, a house, a better car. But Bartimaeus correctly identifies his essential need. He needs to see. And there's a lesson there for all of us. There's perhaps an even stupider question on the surface. Our question number three. Do you want to get well? Sometime later, we read in John, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And again, the New Testament account doesn't give us facial expressions, many reactions of the man or the crowd. I'd love to have seen his face. As Jesus says, do you want to get well? 38 years. How many of you can actually think back 38 years? I confess. You've actually got to be pretty old in your 40s, haven't you, to, to be able to remember something from 38 years ago. 38 years ago, I was 13. When I think of all the things that have happened to me and in the world, everything that has passed by, my daughter's just checking my maths, in those 38 years, all the changes, and this man had waited for 38 years. And he hadn't just waited, he'd tried. You know, he tried to get better. I can't imagine spending that amount of time. It's not like the question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus. Jesus anticipates the man's need. He says, do you want to get well? And when the man speaks to Jesus, we see that He's tried everything that he can to get into the water to receive the healing that came when the waters were disturbed. And yet he can't do it. He's tried everything, but everything that he can do isn't enough. And that's the lesson from question number three, isn't it? That usually what we can do 
isn't enough. If we want miracles to happen in our lives, we have to hand it over to the one who can do miracles. Question number four. Who touched my clothes? Um, in a previous life, I used to be a probation officer. And uh, one of the things we learned in our training was that uh, if you study criminology, what you find is the thing that deters people from uh, committing crimes, more than the punishment they will receive, is how likely they think they are to be caught. So actually increasing the severity of the sentence doesn't have much impact because they don't think they're going to get caught anyway. And so what changes their mind about committing a crime or not is whether they think they're going to get caught. Um, and most crime is really the triumph of hope over experience because many criminals aren't criminals just once in their lives. And this is a story of a woman who wasn't going to commit a crime, but she thought she was going to do something and be able to do it in secret, and nobody would know. And this is the story of the woman who uh, believed that if she touched Jesus' clothes, she would be healed. We read it in Mark. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who, ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking, kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Just imagine her embarrassment which followed so quickly from the joy of knowing that she'd been healed. Here she was, a social outcast, someone religiously unclean, 12 years, and finally she sees the chance of receiving healing. She believes that if she just touches Jesus' cloak, she can be healed. And what do you know? She is. And she feels it. She knows it. She's healed. And so she slips away into the crowd. And then Jesus asked his stupid question. Who touched my clothes? And I love it that the disciples realized that this was 
not on the surface the brightest of questions. You know, imagine Charles Bridge on New Year's Eve or any similar crowd getting into a football match. Um, you're jostled, you're touched. The, if you've ever been on the London Underground at rush hour, you know, everybody's touching you. There's no escape. This is Jesus in the middle of this, and yet he knows that there's something different about this touch. And this got me thinking, what about all those other people that were pressed up against Jesus, deliberately or accidentally, and yet got nothing? It's almost like they didn't realize what they had pressing against them. So they didn't realize the potential that presented itself to them in this situation. And then I thought, how often is that true of us? How often is that true of me? That we come here on a Sunday, Jesus promised that you know, wherever we meet in his name, he will be here. We meet in the presence of Almighty God. And how often do we walk away not having touched his cloak in a deliberate way? How often do we miss out? How often are we just the crowd that presses round? Because we don't expect, we don't believe, we don't ask. It's so easy to be that crowd if we're busy on a Sunday, if we're doing stuff, if we're getting things organized, whatever it is, if we come preoccupied with work or family or worries and fears and anxieties, we're just the crowd that presses round. And we need to be that woman that goes up to Jesus and just silently, without a commotion, just touches his cloak, knowing that there will be healing. Of all those people, that one woman knew that Jesus could meet her need. Question number five. Now, it seems like Jesus was on a bit of a roll here because this is just nine verses later. Another stupid question. While Jesus was still speaking about the woman who had been healed, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, which is where Jesus was going at the time. And they said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. You know, Jairus' daughter was dead. They'd tried everything. Even going to Jesus, pops a, a desperate last-ditch last attempt to save her, to ask for his help, but it was all too late. He arrived too late. And they're experiencing a grief which I don't even dare to contemplate, and they're experiencing it in its immediacy and its rawness. This has just happened. 
Jesus arrives and asks, why all the wailing? Imagine the looks and the stares, the insensitivity of the man. What was he thinking? Clearly he was mad. So they laughed at him. Why all this commotion and wailing? Jairus was guilty of the same mistake that I make many times, all the time, and I'm very likely not alone in this. I trust God uh, up to the point where he doesn't do what I have planned for him. And then it's so easy to despair because I had it really clear. I'd made it, clear quite, made it quite clear to him that this is what he was expected to do. And Jairus was out of options and maybe out of faith. But Jesus' question goes right to the heart of our frequent failure. And it goes to the heart of our need to see things from his perspective. So what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned that uh, if we have faith in Jesus, we have nothing to fear. The disciples were in a a pretty bad place. Um, Jesus told them off for being afraid. If you know my wife, Ali, and uh, you want to talk to her about um, being on the sea in a storm, she will give you a very graphic account, and she'll uh, let you know how scary it can be in a big boat, um, let alone a small one. But we have nothing to fear. Secondly... And as an English teacher, I realize there's too many needs in this sentence. Um, we need to see our essential need, our essential problem. We need to understand what is our fundamental need. Bartimaeus knew that what he needed was to see, and everything else follows on from that. We need to see that we have a problem as people if we live outside of God's grace. And to add to that problem, we need to see that we are powerless in ourselves. The man by the pool could do nothing. He tried. He'd really, really tried. And he could do nothing. Uh, Jesus is the one who could step in and help him. But we can be oblivious to the presence of Jesus in our lives. We can just be the crowd, not noticing, not paying attention. And finally, our faith in Jesus needs to be sustained beyond the point at which it seems to make any sense.
one more thing. I have one more question, which may or may not be stupid. This question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark, we read this account of the crucifixion. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said... Surely, this man was the Son of God. Why had the Father forsaken Jesus? This moment, this real space-time history moment, is the central point of all human history. It's, to steal a phrase from T.S. Eliot, it's the still point of the turning world. It's at this point that all of our histories, all the story of humanity makes sense. Firstly, for three hours, the land was in darkness in anticipation of the momentous event that was about to happen. And then the curtain of the temple, the curtain, the thick, heavy, impossible to move curtain was torn in two and it was torn from top to bottom because that curtain which kept us, normal people, out of the most holy place in the presence of the most high God was torn because at that moment Jesus opened up that way. He made it possible for us to meet here this morning because he opened up the way because he paid the price on that cross. And then the whole of creation waited for three days. The, fa the father forsook the son because the son took on himself fully God, but he took on himself all the sins of the world in his body. And the father couldn't look. He couldn't sustain that. He had to forsake his son so that he could carry through the sacrifice for our sins. And then, of course, three days later, the power of sin was broken. This is the good news, the gospel, the good news that we preach, that we hear, that we know. If Jesus was not 
fully God and fully man. If he didn't die for our sin, if he didn't physically, bodily rise from the dead, then actually all those stupid questions aren't stupid because our faith in Jesus is in vain. But they're only stupid if we don't understand our real relationship. I said I had one more question. I've actually got one final question. And this probably is the most important of all. This is the question that the jailer asks of Paul. What must I do to be saved? We know what Jesus did to make it possible. What must I do? Bartimaeus had to call out. The woman had to reach out. People had to do something in order to receive. And the jailer says to Paul and to Silas, what must I do to be saved? Well, we have to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that that event in history when Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, died on the cross, he did so to pay the price so that he could make this possible for us that we can meet together in the presence of God. What must I do to be saved? Um, If that's a question you don't fully understand the answer to, if you're not sure, then uh, come and talk to me afterwards. Come and talk to Drew. Come and talk to whoever brought you. Talk to somebody who you know and trust who knows God, who knows Jesus as their saviour, because it's of eternal consequence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I want to thank you that um, you sent your son to live a perfect life on this earth so that uh, in his sacrifice on the cross he was able to pay the price for our sin that we could be made right in your sight by his sacrifice Father just pray that you will refresh that in our minds those of you that know you that you will challenge those who don't Father that we will come to a fresh understanding of just how good this good news is we ask it in in Jesus' name One of the things which uh, Jesus asked of his disciples when he met with them uh, on the night he was betrayed, he he asked them to have a meal with him. We know it as the Last Supper. But they they ate together, and at at the end of that meal, um, we know that Jesus started the thing which we now call communion, Uh, breaking of bread, whatever it's called in different traditions. 
And I, I suppose another question that I was thinking about was, uh, why do we do this? This is so far removed from Jesus sitting down with his disciples in a room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Why do we do this now? I think there are three reasons. Um, the first one is obedience, because Jesus said, do this, to remember me. The second is fellowship, because to meet together, to share this symbolic remembrance of um, Jesus' death for us is a great moment of fellowship and togetherness. And thirdly, um, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, um, we, we declare his death. It's a declaration. And um, I didn't grow up in a tradition where you would come to the front for communion, but there's something nice about getting up out of your seat and declaring to anybody else that this is the Lord's Supper. This is communion. We do this because we know he died and because we know we only do this until he returns. And so it's, it's a simple thing, it's an easy thing, but it's also uh, an important and deeply important thing for us as believers. And so um, in a moment when the servers come up and when the band plays, you're going to have the opportunity to come to the front if you wish to have uh, wine, it's in the, the cups if you want fruit juice, it's in the small um, individual containers. All we ask is that as you, if you come up, it's because you know Jesus is your saviour, you have asked him to be your Lord and you have sought to serve him and be his disciple. If that doesn't describe you, then please don't be embarrassed to stay seated. No one's going to judge you. Do use the opportunity to think, to think about it and think, is this something that I wish I realised my need of Jesus? But uh, as we do this to obey, to share fellowship and to make a declaration of his death, we do it prayerfully and thoughtfully. So if the servers would like to come up and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we know that um, Jesus said to his disciples, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. And then he chose to finish that meal with this commemoration to show them what was about to happen to him. And Lord, we, we know because we look back that his body was broken, that his blood was spilt. And although these are uh, just bread, just wine, when we take them like this, we do declare our faith in you. We declare that Jesus died, that his body was broken for me, his blood was shed for me, and in that sacrifice, I find eternal forgiveness in your sight. And so as we take this now, Lord, I pray that we will be mindful, mindful of uh, its seriousness, mindful too of the joy that follows 
that uh, he rose from the dead, he is risen, and he will return again, and we will no longer need to celebrate this communion. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.